This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. So let's begin. We were in chapter six two weeks ago. Now what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into where we left off. Now two weeks ago in the Bible study, we talked about six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination unto him. And that was round about verse 16 of chapter 6 of the book of Proverbs. And we, we dealt with these at length. We talked about a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to shed mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. All of these things are utterly abhorrent to the Lord our God. He despises them all. And just as a quick review, well, we understand what a proud look is. We'll say, well, I understand that pride is a sin. Yes, but this makes it clear that even a proud look is something that is displeasing to the Lord. A proud look, an arrogant look. And you can tell that sometimes. You can't always tell that you can't always judge that accurately because sometimes people have facial features that give them a certain aristocratic look and then you look at them and you think that they're thinking one way or you think you end up judging a book by its cover and that's not always right. In fact, usually it's not. But sometimes you can tell a proud look. Can you say Hillary Clinton? Now I know that was low-hanging fruit, okay? And it might sound like I'm being mean, but I'm not. It was evident. She has that. She's had that. Michelle Obama just as, just as bad. Just as bad. So you're picking on them. You're sexist. No, I'm not. Because there are plenty of men out there with proud looks as well. There really are. And I dare say Donald Trump has had his share of them. Now, that being said, we pray for him. Okay? So let's, let's move on from that. But he says a proud look and then a lying tongue. And then this other one that he mentions here in verse 19, a false witness that speaketh lies. So both of these speak about dishonesty. Dishonesty, dishonesty is an abomination to the Lord. Dishonesty is something that is abhorrent to him and that is never justified or justifiable. And so that's something that we have to remember as Christians to keep as an absolute in our hearts. If we are going to wear the name of Jesus, if we're going to wear the name of Christian, we have got to be just as honest as he is. And how honest was he? He was absolutely honest. Because that's the only kind of honest to be. You show me someone who is mostly honest, I'll show you somebody who is still wholly dishonest because if they'll lie about one thing, they'll lie about something else. They either cheat on their taxes or they'll lie about their income or, their, or they'll lie to their spouse about what they were doing on their computer or what they were doing uh, when they were supposed to have been working late some particular night. You know, dishonesty is something that makes the whole world crazy. And I mean really crazy makes them believe crazy things and do crazy things as well. Hands that shed innocent blood and feet that be swift in running to mischief, these are two things also that speak about our actions. He mentions also a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Now this goes even beyond the things that we do and it strikes right at the root of the matter. The heart. Verse 18, he says, "...a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations." 
The heart that devises wicked imaginations is abominable to God. It is offensive to Him. It is, it is abhorrent. That's the word I've been using. It is abhorrent to Him. God even cares about the way we think. Now, if that sounds like it's too Orwellian for us, if it sounds like it's too big brother, what do you mean? You're telling me how to think? I'm telling you that God is telling us how we ought to think. Because mankind, when we're left to our own devices in our own fallen state, well, we have the historical record of it. What happened when God left man to, to be ruled by the dictates of his own conscience? Now, this was way back in the generations after the fall of mankind, after Adam and Eve got booted out of the garden. Well, what happened? Well, what happened was you had a species of fallen humans that lived for hundreds of years at a time in a single lifespan. And they became so irredeemably wicked. I was just talking with a brother about it right before Bible study. They became so irredeemably wicked that God had to destroy them with a flood. That's what happened. So, is it a case of big brother and thought police and all of that? Not really. Not really. And I'll explain the difference really quick. Lest we be tempted to think of God as a tyrant. Okay? Big Brother and Thought Police and all these different concepts that we get from George Orwell in 1984 and, and, uh, and other uh, tyrannies that have existed throughout human history is that you've got people policing your thoughts. God's not interested in that. God does not want me policing your thoughts. Neither does He want you policing each other's thoughts. He wants you policing your own thoughts. And he tells us how to do that. And I don't want to stray far from our source material on this. I don't want to take us all throughout the Bible on this, but just enough to, to make a point. What does the Apostle Paul tell us about think on these things? Do we remember that? Do you remember that? You know what? Let's go ahead and pull that up. Let me find it. It's in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul, writing by the Holy Ghost, says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true... Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. You want to know how to combat the ungodly thoughts that come into your mind? That, that come passing over your head like a bird flying over your head? You want to know how to, how to run them off and not let it build a nest in your hair as the expression goes? Think on the good things. Think on these things that Paul says to. He says, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good of good report. If there's anything that's virtuous, if there's any praise. He said to think on these things. When you keep your mind filled with good things, then it's off. there's no room in there to get something that's bad or deceptive or injurious or wicked. There's no room in the heart to devise wicked imaginations when your heart is filled with the goodness of God. Is there? It's, it's, a, simple, it's, it's a simple case of finite space in there. If you have a plate that's filled with all of the food that you love the best, fried chicken, I don't know. That's the only thing I could think of right now. Fried chicken, mashed potatoes, gravy, biscuits dripping with butter, 
You know, all of this stuff. I'm not saying y'all have to love that. Just saying the first thing came to my mind because I happen to love all of that stuff. Corn on the cob or off the cob, whatever you prefer. If your plate is filled with all manner of good things, but then there's no room for the bad, is there? If your heart is filled with good things, then there's no room for it to devise wicked imaginations. But this last one here, this last one here seems to weigh more, at least to an extent, than even, than even the others. He that soweth discord among brethren. Now that is, that is a dreadfully serious offense. It's like, you know what? You've got people, there are people that come in and out of the faith all of the time. It should not be that way. They should come in and stay, right? But sometimes people forget what God saved them from. They forget the goodness that God has brought into their life. Forget They forget that He has forgiven them of all their sins. They forget His goodness. And they find themselves being drawn again to the beggarly elements of the world. Now it's one thing if a person decides, you know what, I think I just want to go back to the way that I used to live. And, and so off I go. And so they end up departing. Now that's not good. Obviously it's not. It weakens the whole body of Christ. And it's, it is the returning to perdition of a soul that was once saved. And the latter end of that person is going to be far worse than their former end would have been had they never known the truth. But it is far worse for someone who decides to depart from the faith to go back into a life of sin. It is far worse for them if they decide to try to take some people with them. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, you know what? I don't like this church anymore. I don't like the preacher. His hair looks funny and his ties are tacky. Or whatever is, uh, whatever a person's justification is for, for leaving the church. If you want to leave, that's one thing. But when they get an attitude or a mind of, but I don't want to lose my best friend, so I'm going, to work, I'm going to work on my best friend who also goes to the church. I'm going to work on them to get them to leave the church with me. Such a person is sowing discord among the brethren. And they have, not, they have become not merely a person that has decided to depart from the faith. They have now become an aggressor against the body of Christ. You know about cancerous tumors, right? We know some stuff about cancers. Some of us, maybe we've experienced them in our lives or we have family that has experienced them in our lives. Well, we know that there are basically two kinds of tumors. I know that there's more than that, but they're roughly, they're, they're placed into two different categories. You have benign tumors and you have malignant tumors. Now, a benign tumor is just something that's just kind of sitting there minding its own business. It's not doing anything. It's not harming anything. It's not benefiting anything, but it's not hurting anything. It's just sort of there, right? It's not a threat, but it's not a benefit. But a malignant tumor is a whole other ball game. The malignant tumor is one that is seeking to grow and spread and spread its corruption and its destructive influence within an organism that it's inhabiting and ultimately doesn't stop until the organism has been killed, right? A person that sows discord is like a malignant tumor in the body of Christ. They're like a malignant tumor. And I'll say this, right? and I'm not trying to park on this overly long or make this, uh, make this something bigger than it is, but you know, God is a loving God. And He's a gracious God. 
But he does not hold this sort of person guiltless. He does not hold this sort of person guiltless. People that make themselves enemies of the body of Christ and enemies of the faith by attacking the people that are in the body of Christ and seeking to undo their salvation and undo what God has accomplished in their life. Well, let me ask you, is there anything more like the devil that you, than you, that you can think of? I can't think of anything more like the devil than that because that's what the devil's engaged in all the live long day anyway. He's always trying to destroy believers and undermine their faith and undo the good that God has accomplished in their lives. And so if you happen to encounter someone like this, someone who sows discord among brothers and sisters in the church, someone who seeks to stir up and cause trouble and division among the members of, uh, of this faith body, if you want to call it that, do yourself a favor. Turn your eyes, turn your ears, and just give them the hand and walk away. I'm not saying that you have to hate them. By all means, still pray for them. But don't even give them a minute of your time lest they infect your thinking with some root of bitterness that has already completely overgrown their heart and that's why they're in the state that they were in. And, and let, me, let me just bring this out. I have never in my life, and I've served God for over 25 years now, I have never in all of that time, in all of that time, 25, 26, maybe 27 years, depending on how I count it, I have never met an ex-Christian that was happier than when they were a Christian. Never have. Never have. That type of person is a unicorn. They don't exist. They might think that they are, but you really dig down into their soul, you really dig down into the depths of their heart, and what you will find is a person who is bitterly disillusioned, which is to say, bitterly delusioned, actually. You'll find someone that regrets many of their life decisions. And we'll just leave that at that. And we'll move on. Let's get into the new material. Now, verse 20, he says, My son, keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart and tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. And when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. What's that mean? The wisdom that we learn from our parents, if we have God-fearing parents, this wisdom will lead us and will commune with us in the hour that we need it most. And then in verse 23, he says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Now, I want to park on this for a few minutes, if I may. He says, The commandment is a lamp. Well, we know what a lamp is. You turn it on and you can see where you're going, which is good. Or you bump into walls and bark your shins against furniture in a dark room. That's what lamps are for. That's what lamps are good for. He says the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. So it, it shines a light on our understanding and it shines a light on the, on the way in which we walk. And it answers our questions of what do I do in this situation? This is what I'm facing in life. I'm not sure what I should do. What should I do? Well, if you ask me, there's usually two answers that I'll give you right off the bat. One, pray about it. That's the first thing that I'll say. And the second thing that I'll tell you to do is look at the Word of God. And I might tell you to do those in reverse order. It doesn't really matter which you do first. 
So it's important is that you do both, that you consult the Lord and you consult the spirit or you consult the word and you consult the spirit of the Lord. Okay, so, well, well, isn't one of them sufficient? Well, one of them should be sufficient. But the problem is a lot of times believers like to argue with the word when the word actually spells out the clear choice that they should make. They don't like what it says or they're in doubt of what it says. And so they argue with it. And that's a losing proposition because what will happen then is that the Spirit will just back off and let you do whatever it is that you want to do. And then when you get yourself elbows deep in it and then it starts to backfire on you and then you start to feel the pain of having made a wrong decision, then the Spirit will come, will come by and say, I showed you in the Word what was the right thing to do. So now you've got a worse situation than what you had. But if you're ready to listen now and not argue, it can help get you out of that situation. Because this second part of this verse that he says is something that every single one of us, brothers, sisters in Christ, every single one of us need to understand and embrace. This is, this is a fundamental truth of the Christian life is right here. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. He didn't say that they're a way of life. Oh, it's like, oh, well, this is a job and this is an occupation. This is a profession and this is a way of life. No, he says that reproofs of instructions are the way of life. The way. Reproofs of instructions. Now let's think about this, okay? Let's, let's take this, let's meditate on this a little bit, expound on it some so we can fully appreciate the gravity of this statement, okay? Now, creatures, animals of all kinds are born into the world all the time, aren't they? All, the, all kinds of creatures, from fish to, well, their fish are hatched, I guess, but you know, you've got mammals that are born into the world of, of, of all different types and birds that are hatched and creatures that come into, come into existence and we live and we die. And a, a lot of those things, they're born and then they're able to operate immediately out of instinct. If you've ever seen some kind of nature documentary about wild horses, it's actually kind of fascinating. I remember learning about this many years ago. Wild horses are born out on you know, open plains or wherever it is that they actually exist anymore. I'm not sure. But within a matter of seconds, within a matter of seconds from breaching the mother's womb and, and, and exiting in, into, the, uh, into the open air, within a matter of seconds, they are trying to stand up. Now, they're not succeeding because they're just literally just been born and their legs are very weak. They don't have the strength yet. They don't have the balance yet, but they're trying to stand up because there is an instinct that is programmed within them that they have to be up and moving as fast as they can because as long as they're not moving, they're vulnerable to predators. They're vulnerable to predators. But now you look at humans and we're a different story, aren't we? We're a different story. We're, we're not born into the world and then within five seconds we're trying to jump up and run down the hall and hop into a car and, and, and race off and, and uh, buy a house and start a family and start a job and all this. It's like, that's not happening. Nobody's coming out of the womb looking for a paper and pen looking to work out some trigonometry, right? It doesn't happen. And so we come into the world, human beings, knowing Virtually nothing. We have very, very little at all that comes with our operating system. There's very little software comes pre-installed on our operating system, so to speak, 
uh, other than the ability to nurse and recognize that we're in the safety of mama's arms. Amen? But much beyond that, we have to be taught, don't we? We have to be taught. Well, what, is, what does that imply? What, is, what does that mean that we have to be taught? Well, that's what instruction is all about. Why do you think that, why do you think that the childhood period of the human species is as long as it is? It's like it takes us 18 years to even be, de- de- to be declared legally an adult, right? And even that doesn't mean anything. That just means that at the age of 18, you're recognized as legally an adult. It doesn't mean that you actually are one. If you want to judge adulthood by a combination of both biological determiner, determining factors or whatever and psychological you know, mature, maturity factors, it takes a lot. It takes a long time. Well, what are we doing in those 18 years that we're raising our children? Are we just letting them run amok or are we? Well, we're not doing that, are we? We're training them. We're teaching them. We're instructing them. We're straightening them out when they're going astray, aren't we? We're teaching them. We're instructing them. We're trying to bring them. Uh, we're trying to bring them up in knowledge and wisdom so that when they leave the nest, so to speak, they won't fall into criminality or poverty or misfortune or any of these other things. We don't want to see any of our children fall into. So we spend roughly 18 years preparing our children for life in the real world. Why? Because reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And I know that an awful lot we've been saying a lot over the last few months about um, the parallels between growing up in the natural sense and growing up in the spiritual sense. Well, if reproofs of instruction are the way of life to raising children in the natural world for a natural life, how much more are they the way of life for a God who's raising up His born-again sons and daughters for a spiritual life in the here and now and for life in the hereafter? So let's go back to this phrase. For the commandment is a lamp, And the law is a light. And reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Why are we we emphasizing this so much? Because many times reproofs of instructions are uncomfortable. Many times reproofs of instructions can even be painful. And we can even, if we're not really rightly oriented towards God, not quite rightly oriented towards God, they can even be offensive. They can be offensive. I mean, how many of you remember a time where your mom got on your case for something that you were doing as a kid and jacked you up over it? And rather than being penitent and apologizing and then amending your behavior to please your mom or your dad, you got mad, you got offended, and then you ran off to hang out with your friends because they, you knew good and well, they were going to reinforce and justify your bad behavior. You know what I'm talking about? We were all kids. We were all recalcitrant teenagers. Should we be that way as Christians? Should we be that way as believers? When the Word of God speaks to us and says, hey, you ought to do this, or you ought to do that, or you ought to not do this because this is better, and these are the consequences if you don't do the right thing. Well, how does the born-again Christian, how ought the born-again Christian to react to that? Shall we be offended? Shall we become angry with the word? 
or shall we seek to twist it to get it to say something that it doesn't? Now, that's a tragic case. And that sort of thing happens too. See, surely, surely no Christian would ever do that. There are Christians that do it all the time. I remember counseling a man some time back, and it was a complicated situation, but in talking with him because he wanted to talk, I took him right to the Word of God because that's what I stand on. And you need to understand something about your pastor, okay? He stands on the Word. I could stand up here and give you opinions all the live long day. And if that's what I, if that's what I do, if, that is, if, that, if that's the source of my preaching and teaching is just my own opinions, then you ought to pack your Bible and you ought to pack your family and you ought to run for your life and find another church. I stand on the Word of God and I preach and I teach from the Word of God. And that's where, that's where all the authority is, is derived from. Okay? And so I took the man to the Word of God on the subject and not just to one place. Okay? Because the, their, that particular subject is touched on in about at least three or four different places, if not more. And I took him to the Word and I showed him. I said, Brother, this is what the Bible says here. And this is what the Bible says here. And I finally got him, I got him narrowed down to a place where he had to confront the infallibility of the Word of God itself in order to force him to make a decision either based on the Word or in spite of the Word. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? I took him to the Word so that he could make his choice, but so that he could make his choice without any delusions. So that he could say, you know what? You're right. The Word of God is crystal clear on this matter. I am not going to continue. I am not going to pursue this certain course of action. Or so that he could say, you know what? The Word of God is clear on this matter, but I'm just going to very well do what I want to do. And he chose option three. So which one was that? He took the Word and he twisted it right in front of my eyes. And he tried to make something else fit into that, which was not in any way related to that in the least. So let me ask you a question. Is a basketball a piece of pizza? That's a no-brainer, isn't it? No. Well, well, what if I take that basketball and I smother it with cheese and pepperonis and I bake it for a little while? Surely it's a piece of pizza then, isn't it? No, in fact, you've just ruined good cheese and pepperoni. And you probably damaged your oven too because I think that thing would probably explode if you baked it. You can't make one thing into another thing just because you want it to be that. You can't. Oh, but you don't understand, preacher. I went on the internet. I went on the internet and I found a website that told me exactly what I wanted to know. Well, congratulations. You can go on the, you can go on the internet and find a website that tells you that we're descended from aliens. You can go on the internet and find absolutely anything that you want to find if you're trying to back up if you're trying to back up a belief that you are convinced is right, that the Word of God is plainly telling you is not. And so that really, that really isn't the way to go. 
All right. The proper attitude of a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, the proper attitude of a disciple of Christ is when we encounter something in the word, when we when we are instructed from the word. Not to argue with it, not to fight against it. It is not ours to get the word to conform to us. It is ours to conform ourselves to the word. And better than that, better than that is to allow the word to transform us by the renewing of our mind. See, there's a huge difference right there between mere conformity and allowing the word of God and the spirit of God to transform even the way that you think, because then you're not you're not um, wrestling with it, and fighting against it and resenting it all the while. And that's what we're told to do. That's what we're told to do in the Word of God is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to allow the Word of God to do that. Now, we're almost done with this, okay? Because this, this verse that we parked on and, and emphasized so strongly concerning the reproofs and instructions being the way of life is really just the opening to a much longer sentence, okay? And I want to at least cover that sentence. So let's read it from the top. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. It means that he's brought to poverty. And the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Now let's stop right there because lest we be tempted to think this is some sort of an injunction against all women, that's not what he's saying here. This is by no means something that is anti-woman or sexist. He says to keep thee from the evil woman. Now, are you an evil woman tonight? Raise your hand if you're an evil woman. I don't see any hands. Okay, praise God. Good. So then it doesn't apply to you, does it? So no reason to take this as some sort of a slander against all women. It's not. It's an instruction to his son to remember the commandment and to keep the law as a light and to remember that reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep him from the evil woman from the flattery of the tongue of the strange woman. Remember, we talked about her in earlier Bible studies. Both of these represent a woman of untrustworthy character, okay? And then he talks a little bit more about her. So why does he say so much about this? Is it a case of he had a problem with this himself? Well, in later years he would, but in different circumstances. But he's talking about it because this is a tremendously powerful temptation among men. It is a tremendously powerful temptation among, women, among men. And it's one reason why, wives, you got to guard your husband. And I don't mean guard him by locking him in the house and trying to keep tabs on him 24-7. It's not about that. It's make sure that dude doesn't want anybody else. Now think on that for a moment. Why don't you be the most amazing and wonderful wife that you can possibly be? so that it doesn't matter what comes strutting across his field of vision. He won't even give it a second blink because in his, in his heart and his mind, he already knows, I got the best one around. Why do I even want to think about hooking up with anybody else? 
Now, that doesn't lay all of the responsibility on the wife either, okay? Because a man ought to be the same way towards his wife. He ought to be the best husband he can possibly be for, you know, for the same reason. So it doesn't matter what comes strutting across her field of vision, flashing dollar signs or, or, or whatever else that it might be, or offering to give her attention that the husband never does because he's always so busy. Oh yeah, this opens up a huge thing. It really does. It really does. Husbands and wives ought to protect one another like siblings, even more so. You ought to protect one another because you're literally protecting yourself. You're protecting your other half. You're protecting your own flesh by protecting your spouse. He says, to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman, lust not after her beauty in thine heart. Neither let her take thee with her eyelids. And you know what he means by that. You know, the batting of the eyelids and those ridiculous artificial eyelashes that women are putting on now that, that look like these freakish prosthetics. It's like you're trying to look like Lady Gaga. Come on now. We're supposed to be Christians. We don't have a heart for that sort of thing anymore, do we? The beauty of a Christian woman goes far deeper than her skin or her clothes or anything that she puts on herself, Okay. Neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. He's brought to poverty to where that's all he's got left is this chunk of bread left over and that's it. And the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Let me tell you something. There are women and men out there, okay, that also fit this category. But there are women out there that look for other men. Because that's what they're wired up to do. There are adulterous women that are out there. There are single women that only like married men. And there are married women who only like men that they're not married to. It's a real distortion in their mind. And it takes Jesus to fix that. It really does. It really takes being born again to, to, to untangle that mess and get everything straightened out the way that it's supposed to be. But he tells us of it here. The adulteress will hunt for the precious life. There are women out there, there have always been women out there that are on the make just as much as any man looking to score a one-night stand. It goes both ways. Verse 27, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Now this is wisdom. This is real wisdom. It's very simple. It's not complicated at all. So he's talking about this temptation to adultery and all of this and and receiving reproofs of instruction to to not fall into those traps. And then he says, can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? Can you take take a a lighter and, and a can of hairspray or whatever and set that thing off right next to you and expect that it's not going to torch you? No, it's going to burn you. Can you reach into a fireplace and snatch a burning log out of there and hug it close to your chest and it not burn you? Well, of course not. It's going to burn you. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. It's a case, it's a very simple case of Call it spiritual physics. Man messes around with a woman that's not his. He's guilty. 
there's no justification for it. And the woman's guilty too. And so let us avoid such traps. Let's watch out for our own. Let's keep ourselves. So that's one of the greatest blessings that comes with the liberty wherewith Christ makes us free. It's the ability to think right and to control not only our impulses and our actions, but to control our own thoughts. Again, not control one another's thoughts. I don't police your thoughts any more than I police your wardrobe. When's the last time I came to your house and rooted through your underwear drawer? Boy, that'd be freaky. You want to talk about a controlling church? No, no, we don't do that, okay? But the Lord, by His Word and by His Spirit, will show you how to go through your own underwear drawer, so to speak. I don't care about your underwear drawer, okay? But you know what we're saying. The Lord through His Word and the Lord through His Spirit, those two always working together in us, shows us how to keep our own thoughts pure, to keep our own paths straight. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.